The following program contains themes and topics that may be disturbing for some. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Any Given Day, a podcast series sharing the stories of those who dedicate their careers to serving others. On any given day, the more than 800,000 law enforcement officers in the United States witness the best of community and confront the worst of society. The profession requires a resilient mind every single day. In this season, we hear the stories of how law enforcement officers navigate the unique stress of their job from the men and women who live them. Each week, they remind us, on any given day, you face the unknown, and on every single day, you carry on. On this episode, we're speaking with Sean Riley, who has almost 20 years in law enforcement, first as a deputy with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department in California, and also as a detective in the Kirkland Police Department in Washington State. Sean has the quintessential story of using his personal experience to help fellow law enforcement officers, and that's really what any given day is all about. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate it. So you really do have a very compelling personal story that I want to get into the details of. But let's start at the very beginning. What made you get into law enforcement? Well, you know, I never planned on getting into law enforcement. I was playing baseball at San Diego State University, and I was getting ready to graduate. And and my mom and dad told me that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to get a real job once I get out of college. And I was out on the campus lab lawn, and I took a couple of electives in college. And at that time, the sheriff's department was hiring in 1987, they were hiring and paying as much as electrical engineers with full benefits. And I was like, well, this is interesting. And when I was up at the table, um, the two recruiters told me I could play on the sheriff's baseball team. And I was sold. And the rest was history after that. And then it you know, became a career and then a lifestyle. Do you have any favorite moments that you remember as you were uh, serving? You know, I, I always enjoyed the homicides that were solved that that you know, were very complex. I, you know, one I remember to stay was early in my career was um, uh, saving a little four-year-old girl that was kidnapped and, and brought to our state and from another state from Texas and, and then watching her reunite with her mom, which we flew up, you know, that, that, was, that was a good one. So with a favorite moment in policing, you also came across some personal hard times in law enforcement as well. As the years sort of racked up and you, you came across some injuries and some other things, do you want to tell us a little bit about the hardship that you had? Well, you know, I, I don't know whether it was so much as the, the hardships is, is what I brought upon myself and, and the lack of skills that I had when it came to dealing with me as an individual, me dealing with my emotions and then, you know, applying that as a police officer, you know, in all these years that I've helped officers now, one thing that's, you know, pretty unique, not, I wouldn't say unique, pretty common between us is, is none of us have told how to be told how to do the job. We, we know how to do that. It's the other parts of our life that we really struggle in. And, and, and I experienced that, you know, I came out of college pretty naive. And once I came out of college naive, um, you know, in the first few months of, of being a uh, deputy sheriff, um, uh, I was responsible for taking the life of another human being. And I didn't know that was going to walk me on about a 23-year journey of PTSD and addiction and divorce. And, you know, every stereotypical study out there that police do or police uh, uh, have a negative impact on, then I, I walked that. And so, it was crazy because, you know, when I came up, you know, you you had to drink with the boys and girls. That's just the way it is. 
right? I mean, that's if you're not, you're not trusted. And, and you know, I, I was always a, you know, a heavy drinker, but when I finally moved up to Washington, be closer to my parents, be closer to the home, then, you know, I started that stuff in life. Remember, the life and police life, they're two different things. I started that thing in life where you get married, have kids, white picket fence. And, you know, then I went through my first divorce, you know, I, and I got to tell you that divorce, which is the number one reason for um, suicide in our population is inter, interpersonal relationships. That was a kicker for me, more so more so than the trauma of taking the life of another human being. How sad, how sad is that? Right? Well, let, let's hear because, That's a really important point. Let's hear a little bit more about that. So, so walk us through the time frame for that a little bit. You were in California, and then you moved to Washington yeah. State to be closer to your parents. And is when you had to take the life of another citizen, was that when you were in Washington? No, it was in oh, California. That was in California. In fact, okay. I, I was back under Early in your career then. Yeah. And so I went from this naive college kid, you know, into this new thing and and, you know, hey, I was told to be quiet. You need to get back online. Don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to a site to get your butt back online. It, but that's not really anybody's fault. That's what we knew at the time, right? So there's no, in my situation, yeah, there are some tragic moments, but there's nobody to blame. You know, the, the, this I brought on myself, but then I figured out a different way, you know, that we, maybe we can handle these things. And I think you know, moving up there was actually a way to run a little bit, right? That there should have been a red flag for me right there, but it wasn't. You know, I used the excuse of moving home and getting closer to my parents, which, which of course I wanted to do, but I was running when I look back on that. Because and what were you feeling at that time? I mean, were you, you may not have been able to even articulate it at the time that you were feeling it, but as you look back on it now, what, what, how did that incident actually make you feel that that had you? start to get spun I, up on this like can you even I, I identify those how, i didn't know how to feel i couldn't talk to him i couldn't talk to my partner um and he and i were best friends but we couldn't talk because there was a pending indictment coming down you know which we were cleared on and i knew we were going to get cleared on it but i mean this isolation by people and departments I, I didn't really know how to respond i had no ability emotional, I guess, intelligence to actually deal with that. I was never taught that. I was taught sports and I was taught in the academy how to win. And I win at all costs. And, and that's it. There was there's there's no other option because if you lose, you die, right? It's, it's really interesting because I always do this training where I talk about the, the adult, uh, the teenage and the child ego state. And, you know, they, they, the administrators always want us to respond in the adult ego state, which is that mindfulness and being engaged. Um, but we get all our training, rightfully so, in the teenage ego state. And if anybody has teenagers out there, that's not the greatest state in the world. But here's the difference between that state and the other one. That's the ego state that pulls the trigger and runs into the building. So that's the one that gets the most highly trained. So because it takes risk, right? It has inappropriate relationships. It's impulsive, all those things. Those things keep you alive on the street. Now, when you condition yourself for 10, 15, 20 years in that ego state, when you go home, you might not have the greatest skills in, in interpersonal relationships. And I think our statistics probably show that. And, and I, I was one of those. And so definitely one of those. And um, so I had more than one divorce. Um, in fact, I had three. And of course, um, I, I always said, you know, all my ex-wives were crazy until I figured out that I was the common denominator in all three of them. It wasn't them. It was me. And, that, and that's, 
that's a hard pill to swallow when you have ego and pride because ego and pride can keep you alive in the street, right? You know, bravado, all that kind of command presence that, that keeps you alive on the street. And I had to admit to people I had a fault and I didn't like that at all. That was, that was painful for me. Of course. I, I appreciate you being that open about it. So what was happening there? You were bringing home the ego that you had to have, that you felt like you had to have on the street to stay safe. And you were bringing it into the relationship at home, and it was just a little too much ego for for the person on that was also in the relationship with you. Or how would you? Oh, how yeah, would you talk it was, about it was all that. I mean, you know, you, you you interrogate the children, you interrogate your wife, you you know the behaviors that you that made you successful for twelve hours. Then I go home and try to shut them down for four, then go to sleep and go back on for twelve hours. I, I would personally, I wasn't very good at that. I, you know, I was not taught that. And again, you know, again, we knew what we knew at the time, right? You know, and so I, I can't, I can't cast blame out there, but we know better now. You did have um, an experience then with prescription drugs for a while. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the first pill that you took and then how that expanded into use of it that you felt like probably got you into some hot water? Yeah, you know, I, I was always against pills. I, I will tell you what, I get injured on the job and go from the hospital to the home, but of course, make sure I stop off at 7-Eleven and get a case of beer or something. You know, I was just that, you know, I was that stereotypical cop. And, um, but th- that divorce, part of part of the problem was my drinking. And um, so w- once, you know, the, the, the um, divorce went through, then it's like, oh my gosh, I got to change myself. So I quit drinking on my own. Of course, but I, I didn't have any other skills along with it. And so I really started getting into bodybuilding because I wanted to fix the outside of myself. Because remember, if I look good, then, you know, people can't really tell when, when in reality, my whole inside was broken, but I was just too prideful and, you know, too much ego to even admit that. And um, I ended up having surgery and, and, you know, I was like, being the cop that was, you know, always there before everybody else and, you know, working hard for the victim. So I wanted the edge and I was taking androstene and testosterone, just, you know, getting any kind of result I could. Again, there's a common theme here. I was running, right? I was running again. Now, so now I'm running from that. And I, I had an injury and I ended up getting um, uh, surgery and uh, I took Vicodin. And boy, I'll tell you what, when I took Vicodin, I I was against it, but the feeling of it, man, I had no pain. I The divorce didn't bother me. Finances didn't bother me. I didn't have a hangover. I could do my job. You know, I could take half a pill and, you know, that only, it only loves you for so long before it turns on you. And, you know, I got to a point where um, I was doctor shopping and I was about 30 to 40 Viking in a day. You know, there was sometimes more, sometimes less, just depending. And, um, uh, I ended up getting indicted by the federal government for doctor shopping, and I was 100% guilty. And that wasn't anybody's fault because, you know, one of the things I prescribed to today is ultimately at the end, what I found out is we all are responsible for our own mental health and and our own substance use. We're personally responsible for that. But there's outside organizations like us that resource you up so maybe you don't have to go through something like that. And did you have a trigger point? I mean, obviously, um, being I'm assuming you were arrested and and had to go through the yes. whole process. So was it the arrest that was the moment that you started really confronting that you were responsible for this? Or did you have health effects even before you were arrested that you were kind of grappling with? 
Well, I had health effects. I mean, but, you know, no one really knew at the time. There were there were red flags, but again, they didn't know what they didn't know. And, um, you know, I was having multiple surgeries. Things were just breaking down in my body, you know, hernia, shoulders. I broke my shoulders, you know. There's a kind of clues, you know, when you have like 23 surgeries and in, in two years, it's probably a pretty good indicator things maybe aren't going the greatest in a person's life because there's a lot of things going on there and there's really good chance that that person may or may not abuse, who knows, but I would definitely abuse, abuse that system. And, you know, then of course I used, you know, all those skills I learned on the street worked very well for me when I was doctor shopping. So they did not, it got me what I wanted at the time. And boy, they were just so detrimental to my personal life. And when you were sort of manipulating the system, as you've described it before, did you feel any shame? Or were you so in the moment of just trying to get the next pill that that wasn't really crossing your mind at that point? Oh, I, you know, there was all kinds of shame. And I remember sitting in these pharmacists, you know, places, because I think my, my document said that I, I used 23 doctors and eight pharmacies. And, and, and being honest with you, I, I probably think it was more than that. I think the DEA finally said, hey, we have enough on this guy. Let's just arrest him. He's getting out of control. And um, But I remember bargaining with God. I remember bargaining with everything that I could, sitting in there, just fill this prescription one more time. Don't let it come back on the computer. And they did. And But once I got those pills, then it was, it was gone. It was a whole, no remorse, no nothing. It was just, it was really sad. I mean, it, I mean, that's, that's how, you know, I, I was, I was gone and, and really, really sick. And again, that's, that's something I did. No one did to me. Is there anything that you think would have gotten you off the ramp sooner? You know, and, and I think that's why we developed the programs that we've developed is I just wanted to talk to somebody who had been through what I'd been through. I knew I couldn't be the only one. I tried the traditional EAP approach and, you know, I wasn't getting results that I needed or that I trusted more than anything else that I trusted. Um, just because you give me three numbers, I know about my medical records. I know they're going to get my medical records, you know, so I was trying to pay cash and found out that I was only going broke for benefits that I earned for free. Right. And so I was like, well, that's crazy too. So I was just in this madness going round and round, trying to figure out how to get help. And if you look at it overall, uh, I, to this day, um, the United States government, um, the U S attorney's office, um, United, United States pretrial and probation, absolutely 100% saved my life. There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. The chief who turned me in and we're, we're dear friends, um, he saved my life because my behavior was not going to change unless there was a consequence or some kind of negative pain in there to make me change. And, and they, they stood up and did it when I couldn't. And I was hoping that's why I built these programs is that maybe somebody didn't have to go through that pain. And, and I want to talk about the programs that you built. Um, but I also want to ask you, so you get arrested, um, you start going through therapies, um, um, you know, rehab and, and those kinds of activities, I'm sure. And uh, you and I have talked before about actually going to therapy. What was it like the very first time you went? And tell us a little bit about what therapy feels like for somebody who maybe has never done it before, um, but is struggling with something and, and they don't know their next step. Like, what, what does it feel like to go in the room and sit down and look at somebody across the table or sometimes these days even online uh, and start that conversation about things that you may not even want to share with someone else. Well, here's one thing. And I heard Dr. Marshall talk about this the other day. He's, he's a, 
he's a doctor in California that I work with uh, on first responders. And he's just a brilliant man. All his, all his brothers and sisters are first responders. And he's actually a side idea doctor. And he was, but he was a drug addict homeless on the street before he became a doctor. So he gets this. And, and we were talking about this specific subject about, you know, reluctance and being afraid and everything else. And he, he, he says something that we all ascribe to is, is you know, surrender is actually a, fo- a form of, of power. And, but we don't teach that in the academy. We teach surrender is, oh my gosh, you give up, your life's dead. Surrender is, I can't do this alone, right? That is actually taking power back over the situation. And he's 100% right. And if, if you can get over that one small thing in therapy, that one thing, I'm not asking you to surrender your ethics, morals. I'm not asking you. I'm asking you to surrender one thing, and that's getting real with another human being and discri- discussing what your problems are. And you know what? That's hard. That's really, really hard. And and I, I I laugh at myself all the time because I'm thinking, boy, I wasted all this time. I got 16 years in therapy. I could have done this thing in four. And you know, but I still got probably another 17 to go on. <laughs> so when were you? You know, I'm assuming the first few sessions of therapy were probably rough, and you may not have even been. Well, let me ask you: Were you ready to be real right away, or did it take a while for you to warm up to sitting across from someone and being like, "Here's all my stuff." When, uh, you know, I was really going to hide the fact that I was a cop when I was in treatment because I was still a cop, even though I was arrested when I was in uh, uh, treatment. And so anyway, um, I let it go on the second day because I was thinking about my kids and daughters, like, screw it, you know, this is over. And, you know, I had a conversation with my father and I remember, you know, on the way to treatment um, uh, that I I was going to stop off and tell him what happened. And the reality is I was just going to tell him my version of what happened and, um, I'm an only child. My father worked 42 years in the factory to give me everything he never had in life. And I walked in that room and saw him cry for the first time because my mom and dad saw it on the news before I got there. And so there was no more lying. Um, I, I didn't say a word. He just looked at me and he said, at what point in your life do you accept personal responsibility for your actions and take your lumps like a man? I was like, wow, it's it's over. It's done. Then he looked at me and he said, you know, um, you're going to do the right thing, even though it's going to impact um, you and this family very, very badly. So that's my father telling his only child who's probably going to prison that you, you're going to, as a cop, you're you're going to plead guilty to a felony and do the right thing and get your life back. That That is, uh, I aspire to be at that level someday. So let's talk a little bit about what you do now to, when you do get in, in you know, frustrated with something or things are not going well, you're grieving your father, you're struggling with a health issue. Um, what do you do now that helps you get through those times that doesn't get you back to your to to bad habits? Oh, therapy. There's no doubt in my mind for me because um, I just know the way I am. I mean, I've got a lot of years now of sobriety and dealing with myself that, you know, uh, I, I have an awareness of, of what's going to go and when I'm going. I know when I project on people or I get angry that it, it probably usually says a lot more about me than it does them. And that's when I know, oh, well, you better call Kathy. And, you know, no, I do I have a first responder therapist. No, because I don't need to be taught how to be a first responder. I, I have one who's completely 100% different than me. I didn't plan it that way. She's like right out of Haiti Ashbury of the 60s, you know, from San Francisco. <laughs> we couldn't have more different views but she totally 
understands life and she knows how to explain it to me and gives me a different perspective. And that's what I need because my perspective sometimes doesn't work. That's why I get myself in position. You know, you guys can use science and science will go so far, but what you're really asking for is you're asking for empathy and empathy don't sit in my brain. Empathy sits in my heart and I will never be able to change my view about other people until I can change my view about myself. So whatever science you got, you got, I'm just telling you what works for us. And, and that's why when we put people in treatment and they come out, they serve the community better than they ever did. Because you know what? I didn't change their mind. I changed their heart. When did you have the idea to start Save Call Now? And then what steps did you take? How long did it take to actually come to being? Um, you know, I, was, I, I went back to school for chemical dependency counseling, became a supervisor in a treatment center. And, you know, I thought my story was like really special and I was going to do a screenplay and a book and all this. And, and then I started working. And I was like, wow, you're just like everybody else. So, you know, it hurt my ego a little bit. So anyway, um, it, it was uh, just to divert for a second. I, I was recently in Seattle a couple of years ago. I know my, all my probation officers. They, they knew my parents and they were very good to me. And there were some people that were in the room. They said, well, what was Sean like on probation? And I was just ready for this glowing review. The chief was there. I know all of them really well. And they go, oh, he was horrible. And I was like, what? I thought I was like an A student. They go, oh, no, he was so arrogant. We, we knew he would come around. We were just all taking bets on when that was going to happen. It's like, wow. So anyway. They don't hold back either, right? Talk about bluntness. (laughs) And so anyway, um, uh, I I saw people in my similar situation coming in and we all were coming in as, as a form of discipline, as a form of getting in trouble. And so I took my personal experience and said, Hey, I I think there's, there's a step in between where EAP and talk and, you know, the whole works. And um, the lieutenant governor of the state of Washington at the time was a big supporter of law enforcement. So I drove to Olympia, Washington, cold called him, knocked on his door. And he said, what do you want? And I said, $500 in a cell phone because I think I can help people. He said, you're thinking way too small. We need to guarantee legislation that will um, provide confidentiality for first responders and their family members because we put them out there and break them. It's our job to fix them. And we passed it in 2009. We started in October of 2008. I think it was March or March or April that it got the bill got signed and it ended up protecting all of the United States. And so then we grew by demand and not necessarily by choice. And then we became trainers, then consultants, and then have companies where we work with um, agencies now to try to get them to think a little bit outside the box of what they traditionally have because. They're supplying all these programs out there. And the main comment I always have is you can't show me a study where our rates are going down in all those negative categories. They're going up. So you can't tell me what we're doing is right. So let's flip the script. Safe Call Now has been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes policy work. That, that's where you're really rolling up your sleeves and getting into the nitty-gritty, which is hard work. You also do have a phone number that somebody who's struggling can call. And we talked already a little bit about sometimes there's reluctance to make that phone call. What would you say to somebody that is not thinking, you know, that is struggling a little bit or is reluctant to call? I'm telling you, you should feel reluctant to call because you're scared. You have no idea what you're walking into. But I'm going to tell you, it's the bravest, most courageous thing you'll ever do because you're going to talk to somebody like me. Most of everybody that answers the phone, they're all 
first responders, but they're retired, uh, current. Most of them have all been through our system or been through treatment. So they get where you're coming from. And, and you're talking to them like this. You're not, because there's one thing I wanted when I was in the middle of my, you know, addiction. I didn't want to talk to somebody who had going to give me the big old book supply of, you know, here's what's going on with you. Just, I needed someone to help me and I knew it was safe. Because once I could get to that safe place, then you could guide me to the next step, which would have been that therapist, right? I just needed the safe place. And that's what we provide for people is that safe place. So it's first responders. It's a, it's a line that people can call that's only for first responders. So it's, it's first responders, medical personnel, and their family members. So we get a lot of calls from family members because family members sometimes are the first to see what's going on. And, and I like that now because I, I encourage people, hey, call us. Um, my B partner, we've been B partners for 25 years and, and now he's acting different than he has. I would much rather you call us and we bring a, what we have, a cl our clinical people on the line. And then there's three of us on the phone trying to figure out, describe the behavior for me. Is there a way to approach this? And can we do this in a caring, loving manner while confronting at the same time? And, and, and let's correct the behavior, right? And so, because we don't want negative outcomes. So we prove that as a population, we're really good at that. So let, let's get really good at getting positive outcomes. And I would much rather do that than get called two o'clock in the morning and they got the gun to their head. They're drunker and crap. You got to get them on a plane and move them. We know how to do that part of it. So I really always encourage people, just call and ask us, you know, and, and we're, we're going to tell you if we don't know something, we don't know something, but we'll find it out for you. We'll sure try. Are there other people that you admire for how they handle adversity or some other you know, leader that you can think about that really is an inspiring person in your life for how they handle adversity? You know, I watch, um, I, I watch my wife and I watch the people of Sozo here in West Virginia. If you can believe it, I actually volunteer my time too. And um, there's a recovery group. I, I'm in a town of 3,000. There's, there's no money here. It's very poor people. I came here and never thought I would live here my entire life. And, and remind us where uh, you are. You're in West Virginia, correct? I'm in, yeah, I'm in, I'm in West Virginia, Summersville, West Virginia, down the middle, uh, middle, uh, lower part of the state. And, um, you know, I used to think I knew what the opioid epidemic looked like and, and America has no clue what's going on here and, and how bad it is and what meth and fentanyl looks like and, you know, the daily deaths. But you know what? I watch these people who have absolutely nothing come out of the woods, literally, and, and do this thing of getting sober. And it's amazing to me. And they'll give you everything they got and they have nothing. That's inspiring to me. And that's the mentality. They're taking responsibility for their own mental health. And I'll tell you what, if you can, they can do it without nothing, then what we give you, you're going to be able to do it. I promise you. You just got to give us a chance. Thank you for sharing your story on any given day. If you're struggling or know a law enforcement professional who is, get help now. There are many resources, including the following. Call 911 if emergent help is needed. Safe Call Now is a confidential 24-hour crisis referral service for public safety employees and can be reached at 206-459-3020. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day at 800-273-8255. You are not alone. Stay safe. Nothing heard on this podcast should be considered medical advice, 
and its contents is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a healthcare provider for that information. The views expressed are solely of the individuals who share them. Thank you to the parents of Chris Dudley, U.S. Marshal Service, for sponsoring this episode. A special thank you to Ron Brooks and Ben Bodden for dedicating their efforts to any given day. They, along with Mike Walker, Mark Espinoza, Matthew Brandt, Patrick Lillis, and James Vandermeer, lent their time, advice, and wisdom. And thank you to Ruben at New Record Studios for technical support and production guidance. The Any Given Day podcast is created by the families and friends of LEOs who have died too soon. It is in honor of how they lived.